I have a question for, for you this morning. Maybe you have an answer and maybe you don't, but I'm going to ask it nonetheless. Is there really such a thing as life after death? That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? If so, if there is such a thing as life after death, what is it like and who's it for? As you well know, there are many perspectives on this topic today, not just among the, the, the various cultures around the world, but even right here among our own culture, right around us. Of course, the world you and I live in is not the first to have varying opinions on the afterlife. Even the, the, in the time of Jesus, the, the people of his day, even the people of God had different perspectives on what happens when a person dies and is there such a thing as resurrection? Is there life after death? People in every age of the world have pondered the great questions of life and death and what happens or doesn't happen at the end. And it is into this world that God himself stepped. And through his son, Jesus Christ, God has shared his perspective on the, the questions at hand. And it is at, of all places, a grave filled with the corpse of a man named Lazarus, where Jesus makes God's perspective on the matter clear. So turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 11. If you have a Bible with you, we'll be in, in that chapter again this morning. We were here a number of weeks ago, but we're returning here one more time as we wind down this, this series that we've been uh, under, undergoing over the last six weeks or so, looking at the various I am statements of Jesus from the Gospel of John. If you happen to grab one of those guest Bibles that I mentioned earlier, we will be on page 864. In fact, the verse I'm starting in is going to be the very top verse in the top left-hand corner, so you, you can't miss it there. Verse 17, and I will read down through verse 27. John chapter 11, verse 17 says, When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus, who was a dear friend to him, along with his, his whole family, Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary, Lazarus's sisters, in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I have always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. I have been to my share of funerals over the years. And it's not just because of my ripe old age of 41, and I've just lived long enough to see uh, many people pass away. But it's because of my vocation. It's part of the job to, 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 to be with people as they grieve the loss of loved ones, to, to help bury the dead. 
and to minister to families during that time. And it's an honor. I have to say it's an honor. In fact, um, when I first came into ministry, I was actually kind of scared of funerals, to be honest with you. I, I never felt like I knew the right things to say or the right things to do. Um, and so there were things to, in my heart at least, I would never tell anybody this, but in my heart, deep inside where no one else could see, there were things that I didn't look forward to and wanted to avoid. And I think that's probably how a lot of people feel about death in general and going to funerals. I've, I've actually since come to, hear me the right way here, I wouldn't say come to like funerals. I know if that's something that we need to like per se, um, but they are something that I, I look forward to with a, with a degree of joy. Because when we, when we celebrate a life that has persevered and, and now rests in the arms of Jesus, that's something not to, to mourn. That's something to celebrate and rejoice. When someone dies well in Christ, that's something that we should even at some level celebrate. So my attitude and my posture over funerals has changed over the years. Of course, it, in the, the various uh, experiences I've had, um, I've heard all sorts of things that people send, tend to say to other people and even to themselves when someone dies. And some of those things are good and comforting and very true and needed to be said. But uh, other things, well, let's just say they're not always so good or, or comforting or, or true. People sometimes don't know what to say, and so things just kind of bleh, fall out of their mouths. Maybe you've been guilty of that. I know I certainly have uh, said things I wish I could take back. But when Jesus speaks at what is essentially something like a funeral, when he speaks here next to a grave, um, what he says comes out, if we hear him correctly, as a shock. It's shocking what Jesus is saying to the people here, Martha, and of course the extended crowd that John indicates uh, to us that was there from Jerusalem. And he says this, essentially, there, there's not just one kind of death that you and I have to take into consideration, but two. There's two kinds of death. Yes, there is physical death, the kind that you and I tend to think about whenever we think about someone dying. It's, it's that moment when, when the body, the physical body, ceases to live. And so we say that person has died. And, and that kind of death is something we don't like talking about, we don't like thinking about. We, we, we spend all sorts of time and money to distract us from it and to delay it as long as we can because it's, it is the great enemy of our lives. And it's going to be part of this broken world. It's part, it is as essential, not essential, it is as much a part of this broken world as anything else that you will experience. Death and taxes, right? Those, those two things that you will never be able to avoid in life as long as this world is broken and until all of creation is renewed. But, but the, the shocking thing that Jesus is saying here is, is that even for those who follow him, who trust in him, death is going to be still part of your life. And, and that might be a surprise, maybe not so much a surprise to you, but it may have been a surprise to some of the people in his day as they think about what it means that if he is indeed the Messiah, if he is indeed the anointed one of God who has come, then maybe death is now at an end. And Jesus is not saying that. No, death is very much going to be a part of your lives, as, even as believers. But the hope that comes in in verse 25 is that it is not something that has the final say on your life. There is a life for the believer that follows death. And so Jesus is speaking into a culture with all sorts of questions about the afterlife, and he's making a profound statement right here. Life does not end when your body ceases to breathe. Life continues. Even though death 
is unavoidable. But here's the, the, the next shocking thing, and the perhaps more shocking thing, and it's the, the thing that disrupts our, our hearts and, and gives us all sorts of anxiety if we really take the time to think about it. And some churches don't even bother to talk about it or ever think about it. And that is the second kind of death that Jesus alludes to here. He's not talking about just a physical kind of death when the body ceases to breathe. No, he's talking about a spiritual death, a final death, an eternal, unalterable death. One that is defined not by the, the cessation of breathing and a heartbeat and the waves, the brain waves in the head, whatever we use to determine physical life and death. No, it is one that is defined by a separation from the love of God for all of eternity. And yet, though the first death is unavoidable, the second one is not. So there's a balance in the things Jesus is saying here between shock and comfort. Yes, there is a life that continues after death. And it's something that you and I have to think about and come to grips with. But it begs the questions that we have already kind of addressed here or started to address is, what does this life that continues after death consist of? How is it acquired? Who is it for? And those are the questions that we're going to answer, I hope, from the text here as, as we conclude this investigation into the I am statements of Jesus. When told that Martha would see her brother rise again, Martha says in verse 24, yes, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. To which Jesus says, oh, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Did you notice how very personal that response to Martha is? And I don't just mean, you know, he's talking directly to her personal. I mean personal in the sense that everything he's saying here is centered upon himself. Not calling Jesus self-centered in some sort of you know, sinful way like you and I tend to be. But the answer to her question, the, the response to her statement, Jesus' own perspective on real life that lasts forever in the afterlife and eternity is always centered on himself. Mar Martha is affirming some sort of generalized hope you know, in life after death you know, at the end of time. But Jesus moves to the specific nature of what that resurrection, what that life is, when he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And all throughout the gospel of John, John has been making this point time and time again that Jesus is the giver of life. From his prologue, in the first few verses of the whole thing, he tells us, as we've already indicated and, and seen multiple times throughout the sermon series, in him, the word of God, who existed with God and alongside of God from before the beginning of time, through whom God created all things, in him is life. He has life in himself. And his life is the light of, to every man and every person. Materially, he gives life to water by turning it into wine at the wedding of Cana. Spiritually, he offers life in his conversation with Nicodemus under the cover of darkness. The light of the world shares the good news that, 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 that you can be born again into a life that never dies. The same life he tells the Samaritan woman that wells up within a person that satisfies every desire, every need, every craving of the human heart. This life is there to quench those hungers and thirsts. Physically, he imparts life to the bodies of a dying boy. 
to a long-standing paralytic, pun not intended, a lifelong blind man, and others. He is the good shepherd who gives life to the full, life upon life upon life, the true vine in whom the branches derive their nourishment and their life and their sustenance. And it is this life that John will say later in his first letter, life that he saw. Isn't that interesting? When was the last time he said you saw life in its very essence? We see things that are alive, but when have you seen life? John says, I saw life and I heard life. I touched life. I witnessed life, real life, capital L, in the flesh. The eternal life of God, he says in, in his letter, is in his son, Jesus, but also not, not just in his son. His son is this life to us. As he says in 1 John chapter 5, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. He is the only true God. He is eternal life itself. Any true Christian talk, sermon, conversation, composition, whatever, any true Christian communication of any kind that speaks about eternal life, spiritual life, or what any of that means, will always point to the person of Jesus. Always. Not to a theory, not to some doctrine, not to a set of propositions, not to some canned prayer. If you just recite the incantation, then you have the thing that's never ever the thrust or the focus of a truly proper Christian message or talk or communication. No, it is to a real, living, remarkable person. One who is at once and for all time both God and man. One who lived, one who died, one who rose again, one who comes to us through the person of his spirit, one who is coming again, one who is forever risen. That's why I never say he has risen, as correct as that is. And that's not to criticize anyone that says he has risen. He has indeed risen, but he, just, he hasn't just risen, past tense, he is risen forever. Risenness forever characterizes the one who has conquered death. He is one who appeared in history, but he is one who has also transcended history. His life, like other notable people in the world, people who led and people who had followings and people who contributed to the, the, the human sort of condition in, in a positive way, unlike all of them, Jesus's impact on the world and Jesus's life is not confined to the past. He's not just left into the, into the, the annals of history to, to live on merely through you know, his teachings or his followers or to his progeny or legacy. No, Jesus died in history like every other person before us and like every one of us here today will, but he also came back from the dead in history. A real, physical, spiritual resurrection. And he lives today. A real, physical, glorified, spiritual, ascended, exalted person. He is risen. And his resurrection 
is the only pattern, the first fruit of any other resurrection that can ever happen afterwards. Your resurrection only happens and only matters because of his. And his resurrection is what yours, what you can anticipate with your own. Jesus says in John chapter 5, the father who has life within himself, he is God. God. God doesn't need anything to have life. God is life. He is the one who, who speaks everything into existence. He's the one that holds everything together. And Jesus says, just as God has life within himself, he too has granted for the Son to have life-giving power. And don't fall prey to the idea for a second that the life that Jesus is talking about there is just that condition which distinguishes you know, animal and plant life from inorganic matter. Right? That's, that's physical life. Yes, it does come from him, but that's not all that comes from him. I love what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, and we've, we've heard this here before. Biological life, physical life, is not the same as the life that, that, that is in God. It is only a kind of symbol or shadow of God's life. Biological life always tends to run down and decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air and water and food and so forth. And so you and I as created you know, biological beings, well, we're offered not just the life that you have today in the form of breathing and a heartbeat and consciousness and all those things that we describe as life. No, you and I are offered that greater spiritual life that God himself is. Life that, John says, once again, appeared. Life that was enfleshed. Life that he witnessed and proclaimed. And the only way to have it is to have Jesus. The only way to have the life that God himself is, is to have Jesus. And so the question then is, how do I have him? <laughs> if, if God has come to earth as in the form of his son to, to share the light that he is with you and, and I. And the only way to have that life is to have him. Well, how? How? How do I have you, Jesus? I want the life that you are. I want the life that you offer. But how? And Jesus answers the question right in our text. Right after he says, I am the resurrection. I am life. And then he will proceed to tell them how they can have the life that he is. And he says it twice in case they missed it the first time. Look again in your your Bible's there in uh, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live, even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. I, I really love the sort of inclusive exclusive nature of that statement there. It's really interesting. L look at it again and think about it in this way. According to Jesus, who is eligible to receive the life that Jesus offers and is? Well, everyone. Everyone. I, I think Jesus had to have been the inspiration to that old Backstreet Boys song that goes, you know, I don't care who you are, or where are you from, or what you did. God loves you. God is offering the life that he is to you. 
It's the inclusive nature of the gospel. It is for anyone. It is for everyone. Regardless of of who you are and where you're from and what you've done and how old you are. I love the beauty of baptizing young children. It doesn't matter how old you are. Because baptism is not about what I have done, but what God has done. The giving of his son, the offering of his grace, the inclusion in his kingdom, it is for everyone. That is on one condition and on, on one basis. And that's the exclusive nature of the gospel, isn't it? On the basis of believing in him. You know, there's a difference between believing someone and believing in someone, isn't there? As I thought about how I wanted to make this point this week, um, I kept coming back to this illustration, and I hope it, I hope it hits the mark, and I hope it makes things clear. Uh, my family has developed a tradition in recent years, and I think I've probably shared this with you before. We have a tradition every Christmas season of going to Bush Gardens to the Christmas Town uh, event. We love it. We don't have a membership there, so we have to kind of find the when the tickets are cheap and you know cough up cough up the money somehow. But we we go and and over the years we our friend group that goes with us has kind of been expanding. So now it's like a half the church it seems like goes with us to Christmas Town, and I love it. It's it's such a it's such a great time, and we always have uh, so much fun with the kids there, and and even the grownups when the weather's not too cold, we get to ride some roller coasters if they're if they're operating, and the kids get to ride rides, and it's just it's a great time, and nothing bad ever happens except one time. This last year, I was asked by my kids to ride the Scrambler with them. You know the Scrambler, right? Yeah, who doesn't know the Scrambler? It's the, it's the ride with several cars that spin in place while the whole ride itself is going like this, so you're spinning like, it's, it's crazy. My kids love it, and they asked me, along with some of the other kids of the families that were there together, they asked me to go ride it with them, so I said, sure. I had just gotten off a, some other ride maybe, and I thought, well, I'll go, I'll go ride the Scrambler. And so I'm standing there in line. It's me, and it's like eight kids. And as I'm standing there waiting for my turn, I feel this, like, presence, and I turn, and it's Kevin Brewer. And he's looking all bashful with his head kind of down. He said, can I ride with you? <laughs> I was like, all right. So we'll put the kids on their own little cars, and then Kevin and I will ride together. And I, I volunteered to sit on the outside, because as you understand how gravity works, you know, you will slide out as the car spins. And I'm like twice the weight of this man, and I didn't want to crush him. So I, I will stay on the outside, but you have to do your very best to stay as far on that side as you can. <laughs> He's like, I promise, I'll hold on real tight. So we get in, the, the bar comes down, I, his knuckles are white. He's gripping this bar so hard. And I'm thinking, surely he will keep his word and stay on that side of the car. Well, the ride gets going and it increases and we're laughing, having fun. And suddenly, right as the car whips to the outer part of the, the circuit, right in front of all the rest of the friend group standing there watching, Kevin loses his grip and hits me right in the hip with his hip. And let me tell you, a man's hips were not made to be touched by another man's hips. <laughs> Ever. Here's why, here's why I'm telling you this story. If I ever get on that ride again, and Kevin swears up and down 
that he will not let that happen again. I might believe him in the sense that I believe what he's saying is true. He's sincere. He has no intentions of letting it happen again, but I will not believe in him. <laughs> I don't think he can do it. I believe him, but I don't believe in him. You see, when we believe someone, we're, we're saying at, at, a, at some level, I believe that you believe what you're saying to me. That you're not lying to me. You're not trying to pull the wool over my eyes. You're trying to pull some sort of like, you know, little sleight of hand trick on me. I believe that what you're saying is sincere. I believe that you think it's true. I may not necessarily agree, but I, I believe you and what you're saying to me. But when we believe in someone, we go a step further than that, don't we? When we believe in someone, yes, we, we're, we're doing what we say when we believe someone, but it's more than that. It's, it's, we're saying you can be counted upon. You can be trusted. I affirm that you can follow through with everything you're saying. Yes, what you're saying is true, and I believe you believe it, but I also believe what you're saying, and I count on it. When it comes to matters of life and death, believing in someone by necessity involves a certain degree of abandonment to them. I believe in you. I'm putting my life on it, on you. When Jesus says, believe in me, he doesn't just mean believe my ideas or the things that people have said about me and as important and as true as those things are, absolutely. But when Jesus says, believe in me, he's saying, in essence, give your whole heart in complete abandonment to me. He's asking you and me to pin all of our future on him. To go all in. Completely. Not holding anything back. I'm going all in with Jesus. In all of his promises. In the sum total of Everything he ever said, anything he ever did, anything he is offered to you or to the church or to the world is always bound up in himself. And believing in Jesus is not saying, I believe in certain things about you. It's not saying, I accept certain things about you to be true or certain things you said to be true. It's not even saying, I believe in you at some point in the past. No, believing in Jesus is to entrust all of your life and your future to him today. Today. You know, Martha here is a really good theologian. And I honor, we honor her, her faith. We honor her, her doctrine here. There's a sincerity and a a certainty and even an accuracy to her perspective of the afterlife. But you know what? Even her sincerity and her certainty and her accuracy are not enough for Jesus. They're not enough to him. Oh, sweet Martha, thank you for affirming you know, the, the very biblical truth about life after death. Thank you. Martha, I am the resurrection 
I am the life. You're thinking about the future. But I want you to look to me now. Right here. Today. Believe in me in the present. The life that Jesus is, the life that Jesus offers, is nothing less than the indestructible life of the deathless God himself. And the only condition for anyone and everyone to receive it is to have Jesus, to believe in him, to give all of your heart personally to him. Not, not to your imagination of him, of what he might be like in your own, you know, inner recesses of your mind. Well, I imagine Jesus to be like this, and I give my heart to that. It's not to your imagination of Jesus. It's not to some caricature of Jesus that someone else has drawn for you. There's lots of people making claims about who Jesus is or was or will be. It's not enough to commit your heart to that. No, it is, it is to give all of your heart personally to the real him. The one that, that, it, that the scriptures faithfully attest to and reveal. The Jesus that is, is the Jesus of the Bible. And no other Jesus will do. He has made himself available to you through his word. And, to, and to believe in him is to give all of your heart to him in that way. To believe in Jesus is to trust every promise and claim he ever made. It is to stake all of your hopes, all of your ambitions, all of your future upon him alone. It is to accept for yourself all the things that he has done for you in love. It is to obey his every word. Not out of duty or obligation or fear. Too many people of faith are locked in that is the sole motivation for anything they do for God. Out of duty, obligation, or fear. And Jesus says, I don't want you to do anything out of duty, obligation, or fear of me. I want you to do anything you do ever only out of loving response to who I am and all that I have done. And Jesus alone has the right credentials to be the ultimate object of your faith, the ultimate object of your love, the sole object of your trust and devotion. And you can't earn him. And there's nothing you can ever do to deserve him. But by faith, by faith, you can receive him. You can say yes to his glorious person and work offered to you. You can build your life on him, no matter how confusing or challenging or costly that might be. Because listen, and if you hear nothing else this morning, please hear this. Your relationship to Jesus today will determine your experience of eternity tomorrow. I, wanted, I want you to hear, the, once again, the todayness of what I just said. I didn't say your experience of Jesus yesterday. The Bible is repeatedly and consistently adamant about the urgency of the present. The urgency of persevering faith. It is not enough to say, you know, 30, 40, 50, 70 years ago, I said yes to Jesus in some sort of emotional experience or at some event 
or in some form or fashion, I said yes to him. And since then, I've just put my, my walk with God on cruise control. Try pulling that stunt with your wife, gentlemen. I said yes to you at an altar 30 years ago. And that's all I need to do. And your wife would knock you upside the head. It's not all you need to do. It's not about what you did in the past. It's what you are and are doing today. Notice I also didn't say your relationship to Jesus tomorrow. As if any one of us is guaranteed another day in this life. Jesus' words, you have to hear them. Death, physical death is a reality. You're not promised tomorrow. And so on one hand, you can't just coast into eternity from some past experience of, of God, or, and you also can't wait to attend to these matters later when you have more time or when it's just more convenient to you. If your life were to end today without Jesus, then all you have to look forward to is a greater second death. But if you believe in him now, and every subsequent now, between now and the end of your life, then you will live. And you will continue to live forever. Even though you will one day die. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That in him, you can have real life today forever. Real life today forever. Lazarus was very dead that day, wasn't he? <laughs> Not that there's different degrees of death, but just so everyone was clear on the matter, he was dead for four days. That it's in the text for a reason. You know, four days, it was long enough for the bugs to find him. It was long enough for the, the smell to begin to set in. It's gruesome, it's gross, but it's truth. I think Lazarus here is the very picture of the soul apart from God. Lifeless, rotting, in the darkness. But there's no such thing, no such thing as too dead for Jesus. not when he calls you by name. Do you hear him this morning? Do you hear his, his gentle whisper, his, his tender tug at your heart? Do you feel him beckoning you to himself, drawing you, wooing you back, back to himself? Even those of you who have walked with Jesus for decades, he speaks to you to walk with him still today to trust in him, to believe in him, to stake your whole life upon him. No matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you did, he will always, always love you. So don't say no to him as he speaks to you today. You don't have to wait until you die to experience eternal life. And by the way, you can't wait until you die to ex experience eternal life. You either have eternal life that is, that is Jesus and is in Jesus. You either have that today or you will never have it at all. 
And you only have it when you have him. He is the resurrection and the life. Let us pray. Jesus, thank you for your very shocking claims about the afterlife, issues pertaining to death, but most importantly, who you are and, and your relationship to all these things. We affirm here this morning as a people of faith, everything the scriptures say about you to be true. Every bit. The Bible doesn't just contain truths. The Bible is true. Every dot in it. And we believe that it accurately and faithfully and spirit-inspiredly, that's even a word, attests to Jesus. The one who is the very agent of creation. The reason anything even exists today is because God created through his word. The only way anything is even sustained moment by moment, it is not by the, the things that we take into our bodies. No, you, Jesus, hold all of creation together moment by moment. And the second that you will, for it not to exist, it vanishes like a cloud in a vapor. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are life itself, the giver of life, the, the origin of life, the owner of life, and we want the life that you are, the life that you offer today. Lord, may that be our sole pursuit. We all come here today from different backgrounds and experiences and different stages in our, our lives and journey of faith. Some of us have walked with you for decades and we're as close to you just about as we could ever hope to be in this life. But some of us have wandered far and wide. And we've lived for everything else in the world but you. We've pursued every other avenue of life. And Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, we've found it lacking. Because nothing other than the life that you are will last forever. So, Lord, may every person here this morning take advantage of this Easter Sunday to, to believe in you now, to abandon all of our hearts to you, to build all of our lives upon you, every bit of the future in the present. We may not know what that even means. We may not fully understand totally what you're going to ask of us, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. As long as we have you, as long as we have Jesus, that's all we ever could want or need. So, Lord, may each person here this morning leave having received you in every sense of the word and be glorified through that, we pray, that the world would see not only the power of your resurrection, but the power of your resurrection at work in us. From death to life, from sin to holiness, from lost to found. Lord, do your work in us that only you can do, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.